He's uh, the actual. Testing. All right, we're good to go. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, good to be with y'all this morning. Um, my wife brings greetings as well. She's out traveling. She wish she could have been here to see the ladies and Amber and Sean. Uh, but man, thank you for having me, brother. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a pleasure, man, to preach for a fellow brother and um, server in this work that we do. Yeah, I heard you guys went through the Book of Mark already, so I hope I say something, maybe not too far from what Sean has already preached, but maybe a little bit different. Um, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, 1 through 8. Mark chapter 1, 1 through 8. And I bring greetings to you from Mosaic Church, Lexington, where we are members there. And I hopefully, man, I'll be able to bring Sean up. Would love to have you up, man. I mean, I love this brother like dearly, 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 dearly. Uh, what you get with Sean, I, pre I think what you see is what you get. And uh, my brother loves hard. He loves hard. He loves his family hard. He loves the church hard. I know it just by talking to him. Serves, trying to serve as faithfully as he can. So we pray for him daily as we do other fellow interns and other pastors as well. And so I think and I believe he's going to be a, a very, very good, loving, long-suffering pastor for this city. Not just the church, but for the city and otherwise. So continue to love, continue to pray, continue to come along and serve uh, him as he serves you guys. Let's pray and then we'll get into this word. Father, we thank you again for how you have graced us, God, with your mercy by allowing us to see the light of day this morning for some to not wake up. Father, you gave us rest for some were not able to sleep. So, Father, we thank you for allowing us by your mercy to come and gather this morning, which many do not have the opportunity to do so because of persecution, whether in the country or outside of the country. And so, Father, we are so blessed And we're so thankful that we have this freedom to do so. And I pray that we wouldn't take this time for granted. And so, Father, if it's in your will, and I'm sure it is, let your word fall on fertile soil this morning. That seeds would be planted, that seeds would be watered, Father. But we trust that you would give the increase and produce a harvest that we would apply to our lives and apply to the world that we would be obedient, God, to do your will, and that is to make disciples of all the nations. And we thank you, Father, in your son's name, Christ, we pray. Amen. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1 through 8 reads as such. It says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who was mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so in light of what we talked about this morning out of Ephesians chapter 4, the unbeliever and the believer, the, the old man and the new man, I want us to look at a man who made this demarcation of what it is to be the old and to walk in the new. And I believe he, 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 he makes the example and he portrays what it is to actually walk faithfully. And what I want to use is to be a forerunner for Christ. And that's what we'll see in this text, the life of a forerunner. What is it and what does it look like to live a life, to walk in obedience, to walk faithfully as Christians, as ones who have put on the new man. And we see this in the life of John the Baptist. But let's begin first of all here. Let me ask this question. Because I'm sure, I'm sure that there are some here this morning who have experienced this right here. Have you experienced in your lifetime a broken friendship or tarnished communication with a, a close associate. Have you ever experienced that? In the beginning, you had trust, you had familiarity, you had genuineness, there was peace. You considered each other a brother and a sister for whom you would call on in times of adversity. And actually, Proverbs 17, 17 does actually tell us that a friend loves at all times and that a brother is born for a time of adversity, right? So what a blessing it is to be able to call someone a friend. However, you were able to call this person a friend, but maybe something happened. Maybe something happened. Maybe this relationship became a source of division and it was irreconcilable. Could it have been a lie? that broke you two up? Could it have been gossip, an argument, selfishness, jealousy? Or maybe they were unreliable in a certain situation. Couldn't count on them any longer. Whatever it was, the two were not able to see eye to eye on an issue, and so you all decided to part ways. You decided that you weren't going to deal with the person anymore. And so has that ever happened to you, ever, before? And so what you end up doing is you just end up agreeing to disagree. And so you said, I'm going to let the Lord deal with this. Yeah, I've, I've been there before myself. I've actually been the one who was a friend who got fed up and walked away. And I've actually been the friend who has caused folks to walk away from me. I've done it. But one person who was not exempt 
from this same experience was the Apostle Paul. On his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, while traveling to Perga, one of Paul's traveling com companions deserted him. The des this, this desertion irritated Paul so much that on his second missionary journey, in Acts chapter 15, when Barnabas wanted to take the brother that bailed on them the first time, Paul sharply opposed it because apparently he had considered this brother unreliable and unworthy to carry out the work or the task. And this caused Barnabas and Paul to separate, caused them to break fellowship. And once a person has shown you themselves to be wishy-washy or unreliable, we then discount what they have to say. And we, we then discount some of their talents and their gifts. And we no longer consider them or consider their words valid. Am I right about that? Maybe not. Y'all can say amen. You can talk back to me. Maybe y'all been through it before. Or maybe you don't want to call yourselves out. I don't know. However, over time in Paul, there seemed to have been a change in the young man who deserted him. In the past, and there seemed to have been a change also in Paul's view of the young man. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes that this brother is of useful service. In Colossians 4 and Philemon verse 24, Paul says he, he is a key helper and a fellow worker. So this man that I'm talking about is John Mark, or better known as Mark, the author of this gospel. I'm sure during the moment of disagreement and abandonment, Paul could not have imagined that this brother who was once considered unreliable, undependable, weak and unfit, I bet he never imagined that this man would become one of the greatest contributors to the kingdom of God. See, a couple of lessons that we can learn from this circumstance of Mark and Paul is this. One, don't be surprised what God can do with people we consider weak and unreliable. Don't be surprised what he will do with these folks. And number two, those of us who may be in a situation like Mark or were in a situation like Mark, don't give up on yourselves. Don't give up on yourselves. Remain steadfast in Christ and watch over time how he develops you. So those are those two points from just the introduction of the author. But in this text, in verse 1, outside of that mark, Mark begins his writing by letting the readers know exactly what he's writing about, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel as we know it now means good news about the life, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But how would the present day audience in this text have understood this word gospel? Because the audience that Mark was writing to was primarily Gentile Roman Christians, not Jews. 
The Jews would have understood the word gospel in their context to mean the good news of a sovereign ruler taking his throne. A messianic promise, as in the king would come in the future and establish his kingdom in Israel. That's how the Jews would have understood it. But Romans, however, are pagans. Well, they would have understood it in a similar fashion, but without the Jewish connection. They understood gospel in their context to mean the arrival of a God, small g, not big g, it's a God, but not the God, the sovereign God, or the coming rulers such as Augustus Caesar, someone who would rule as their emperor, that's who they were looking at. But now the question, this is the question for us. The question for us, brothers and sisters, is this. How do you, how do we understand the word gospel? When you hear it, what do you think? What are you associated with? You hear gospel, do you think of gospel music? Do you think of gospel as just simply the word good news? Or gospel as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you know, that's it. See, what we think about the gospel, understand about the gospel, how we apply the gospel will expose our theology, our understanding and knowledge about God. That's what it will do. And that within itself will determine the aim for your life. It will determine the aim for your life. So Mark, Mark says that this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Yahweh is salvation. Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, Christ, the son of God. God, meaning this is his lineage. This is his family, meaning he is one in nature with God. He is co-equal with the father, Jesus. That's what he says. And then in verses 2 to 3, after telling us what the book is about, Mark then authenticates. He gives validity to this book. He gives validity to the message and gives credibility to his claim of the coming Christ by showing us what? Showing us that what he was talking about was actually spoken of long before him. So he quotes from the book of Isaiah and Malachi. But Mark just doesn't quote about, he just doesn't quote a prophecy about Christ. He doesn't quote, talk about the, 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 the main character. He instead quotes a prophecy about the forerunner for Christ. That being John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. I mean, how many of us would, typically we want to talk about the main character of a story or a movie, book, whatever the case is, it's like, if you go to, a, well, I don't know how old you guys or young you may be, but if we think about the greatest basketball player ever in life in this world, Michael Jordan. Some would say otherwise, but I say Mike. It ain't LeBron, man. You know about Michael Jordan, brother? All right. <laughs> You're not going to talk about some of the, the bench players. You're not going to talk about the role players. You're going to talk about his airness, Michael Jordan himself. 
the main players, the, the big time guy, the number one superstar. But he doesn't do that. He says, Mark, I'm going to introduce you to John the Baptist, a role player, the one who was going to announce, the one who was supposed to be coming after him. And so he doesn't talk about it. He says, John the Baptist, this is Christ's cousin, the one that Luke described as being filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb, Elizabeth's womb. The one who was described as leaping for joy in the womb of his mother when Mary was pregnant with Christ. The question is, why would Mark speak of someone rather than the main character? What's the purpose of a prophecy about John the Baptist? Well, maybe Mark was unaware, not excuse me, not unaware, but maybe Mark was aware of the audience. Those who would read or hear about this writing. Keep in mind that he's writing to Roman believers and unbelievers and the history and culture that they would have been familiar with would have been that of kings being announced of their arrival by a herald prior to the king getting there. This is what they would have been used to. See, kings didn't announce themselves. Okay, they didn't announce them themselves on arrival. They would send someone days ahead who would run days ahead of them and announce their coming. This is what they were accustomed to. And so if there was a, if there would have been a, a skeptic Gentile reader saying that they were unaware of the coming king or that no one had ever spoken of this coming king, Mark could have simply said, oh, wait a minute. But there was one crying in the wilderness. His name was actually John the Baptist. And actually the prophet Isaiah spoke of him. But here's the issue. John is dead. Now I'm back to us. John is obviously dead. John came. John did what he was supposed to do. He was executed by King Herod. John is no more. So for us, because someone like John the Baptist is gone, here's the question. Does the message of John cease to exist? Is the message of John gone forever? Well, what I'm asking is, who was now the forerunner for Christ? Who was the forerunner for Christ? Letting us, letting the world know and the state know and the city know and your community know and your neighbors know and your co-workers know about the resurrected and soon coming King Jesus. Who is that forerunner? It's us. That forerunner is us. And because that forerunner is us, now we can see this now fulfillment that Mark is writing about right here in verse 4. So we see the fulfillment of what that prophecy beginning in verse 4 says. John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness. Now let's get this straight for one second. Baptist was not John's last name. It was not John's last name. Some of y'all may think it was, but it wasn't John's last name. In the Greek word, it says that it's called, he's called John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer. He was called that because that's what separated him 
from everybody else because that's what John did. See, John was a very common name back then, just like it is now, so they would have added on attributes to a person's name, characteristics or relatives to a person's first name to distinguish them from others. But since baptism, well, you could ask, since baptisms in what the community associated most with him, naturally that's what kind of stuck with John. But here's the question. If, if I could remove your last name, what would they call you? If I could remove your last name, add on some sort of adjective or some sort of description, what would the people of Decatur associate you with? How would they distinguish you? I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let you ponder on that. But what would they call you? Would it be positive? Would it be negative? Would it be Christ-like, unchrist-like? Godly, ungodly? What would that be if they could associate you with something? So I don't try to aim at nobody, but I don't try to miss anybody either. All right? But the question is now, maybe, well, they associated baptism with John, but didn't everybody, didn't everybody baptize? No, everybody did not baptize. Everybody did not baptize. Because Jews didn't baptize. What they did was, see, there were no baptistries, there were no churches, there were no first Lord's Day baptisms. The only sort of baptisms that they did, that Jews did, was a symbolic event where they would baptize a Gentile into a Judaistic religion. When a Gentile wanted to become a, a worshiper of the true God, then they would baptize him. That was called proselyte baptism. So you can imagine why John was given that name because he practiced something that was unusual and uncommon during that time, during that day. That's why they gave him that name. But what was also unusual about John was his appearance and diet. Mark tells us in verse 6 that John the Baptist was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locust and wild honey. John was looking pretty crazy, I thought. I mean, because imagine, I mean, present day, if I see your pastor, if I see Sean walking down the street in a camel's hair robe, a leather belt, flip-flops, with some fried locust honey in his hand, or a locust and a jar of honey in his hand, more than likely, I'm going to be a bit hesitant to approach Sean. I'm going to say, hey, man, uh, you okay? I might even cross the street. But that's how, if you put it in this modern-day context, that's how you would, you would look at him. And that's sort of how they kind of looked at John. You see, because John wasn't dressed like the normal person. John wasn't trying to look like the community there. He wasn't trying to look like what society deemed as appropriate, in a sense. It was an odd dress. But otherwise, Mark, he had to mention this for a purpose. It had to be a purpose. But 
most of the time they weren't necessarily thrown off by it either. See, even though he dressed oddly and it was unusual, people of that time knew why he was dressed like that. This is why. His style would have reminded them of prophets of old. Second Kings chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that the prophet Elijah the Tishbite dressed in a hairy garment with a leather girdle around his waist. And then Zechariah 13 talks about false prophets who desire to deceive by putting on hairy robes or garments. False prophets wanted to look like prophets. False prophets knew how real prophets dress. And so they wanted to deceive the people by trying to dress like a prophet. Hence, this is why Jesus says, this is why he says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. So he wasn't saying they tore off a, uh, cut off a sheep's hair. And just, no, he's saying they're trying to look like prophets, a hairy garment. Sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They come to you in wool or hairy garments. So why did John wear this? Because a hairy garment was associated with a true prophet and the people knew that and they respected that as such. His, excuse me. His desire of locusts, his diet of locust honey, of locusts and honey were in keeping with his Nazarite status. John was not concerned about the fashion of the day. He was not worried about fitting with the crowd. He didn't care what people thought about him. John was a prophet. He wanted to be taken seriously as one who God designated for that task. My brothers and sisters, a word to pastors, preachers, those who aspire to be. We are called to be like the prophets of old. Not dressed like the prophets of old, but in keeping up with godliness, character, speaking the truth, faithfully proclaiming the good news of Christ, being bold in that task making a line of demarcation through our proclamation of the word. See, we're not called to be puppets. No, 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 he calls us to be prophets. We don't dance to the beat of society's drum. In the verses four, five, and six through seven through eight, it's not just that John doesn't care to identify with the people based on his dressing and his diet. That's not it. Don't just notice his dress and his diet, but notice what he was doing and where he was doing it. First in verse 4, he was preaching a message. That's what he was doing, preaching a message, preaching a baptism of repentance of the forgiveness of sins. Remember, the job of a forerunner is to prepare the way, to lay the ground or build a bridge for the one who was to follow and to prepare the people for his arrival. And what's the best way for them to prepare for this king? They needed to heed to the message of John. His message was to repent of sins and be baptized. They needed to be forgiven. Now, being baptized doesn't cleanse you. I'm sure you all know this. It doesn't cleanse you of anything, but it declares your intent. 
It is an outward sign to the world, a public demonstration that your sins have been wiped clean, forgiven. But keep in mind, keep in mind what I said earlier about the Jews and how they didn't practice baptism. Keep this in mind. But only they baptized Gentiles into the kingdom, or excuse me, into their religion. Because what we see is, when we go down this text, what we see now is we see Jews now being baptized. Jews are now being baptized under the message of John the Baptist. Those who were once considered, those who once considered themselves the elite in terms of God's chosen people, were now saying through their baptism that I am now no better than a Gentile. They were no more ready to make it, to make it into God's kingdom than a Gentile was. They were saying, basically, I now recognize and realize that I am equal with these brothers and sisters. Nothing that I do is greater than what they have done. Their sins are no more greater than mine. But I recognize that everything is equal at the foot of the cross. And I can no longer place judgment on them as if I'm better than them. And so they are now able to identify with other image bearers. And they recognize that now. And this is what their baptism signifies. And so talk about humility and killing your sinful pride. You're now able to identify with a people who weren't previously inclined toward, nor did you sympathize with them. But it's all on the basis of the gospel that they now recognize this. See, Jews were brought up to despise Gentiles to think of them as outsiders of the covenant. So for them to be willing to submit to an act that only Gentiles were forced to do was an admission of their own self-spiritual bankruptcy. They were now empty of selfish pride. And then in verse 5, this message of John, this message of John was so impactful that we see in verse 5 that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem we're going to John and being baptized in the Jordan. Recognize this geographical location. What in the world was John preaching that was so potent that multitudes were coming? The Gospel of Luke tells us that all John preached was judgment. He called people a brood of vipers and said that the wrath was coming. He'd be the equivalent to a fire and brimstone preacher these days what John would have been called. He didn't tickle the ear of the hearers. He didn't come up with any cliches. He wasn't trying to make people shout, to jump up or nothing like that. He didn't tell them the harvest was coming, the word of faith and all that. He, he didn't say any of that stuff. No, John made it plain and clear. God is coming to judge this world soon with fire, and he's coming with a winnowing fork, separating the wheat from the chaff. So I would highly suggest, is what John is saying, that you repent and be saved. He's saying, get your house in order. The word of God will not go out and come back void. But it will accomplish what it is set out to do. And that's what John is saying. John trusts in that. So why should I be fearful? Why should I be scared of even sharing my faith? Why should I be scared of witnessing? Because the word of God will not go out and come back void. But it's going to accomplish what it was set out to do. We plant 
we water, the Lord gives the increase. This was John's formula of ministry. This is his formula of ministry right here. But then notice where this is taking place. Back to verse 4. It takes place in the wilderness. You ever stop to wonder why these folks were leaving their homes to travel to the wilderness? One commentator said it this way. He said, to be baptized in the Jordan meant that Israel once again comes to the wilderness. The people are called to a second exodus in preparation for a new covenant with God. To go back to wilderness signifies the acknowledgement of Israel's rebellion and a desire to start over. So, after John preaches this message, he now turns to a different subject matter. It's as if John was like, now, I, I, I preached a lot of messages, and I've had many come to repentance through my own ministry. But there's this one brother who's coming, and he's a bad boy. Matter of fact, he's so bad, I'm not even worthy to untie the man's flip-flops, his sandals. Now, I use water when I baptize you all, which did nothing, but this man here, he's going to baptize you with something with, that's even greater than I can, than I had. This sums up John's ministry. This is the point of the forerunner. What John's doing, John points to Christ. This is what he's doing. He, he points others to Christ. This is the point of his ministry. He doesn't point to himself. He said, what I did, yes, 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 it's all good and dandy, but man, let me tell you why I'm doing it. Let me show you the man who can do much more than I can. John could have been jealous. John could have said, Jesus, he's all right, but, you know, being baptized in the Spirit, it's not that much of an upgrade from water. He could have said that, you know. But John, rather, he says this in John chapter 3, verse 30. He says this. He says, I must decrease, and he must increase. I must increase, decrease, he must increase. Again, John is not worried about being identified as the man or the best preacher in town. He's not worried about having the best church. He's not worried about building this platform or trying to worry about having anybody know who he is. John is simply concerned with saying what thus say the Lord. That is it. He is concerned with proclaiming the message of the Lord. He is concerned with maintaining the dignity of the office. He is concerned with handing the baton over and getting out of the way. That's all John's concerned about. Faithful, bold, clear proclamation, integrity, and preparing the way for others. Sounds like what we're supposed to be doing. Not just as pastors and preachers, but as Christians, period. To live this life of faithful boldness, clear proclamation of the gospel, of the good news about a Lord and Savior. To live a life of Christian integrity and to make discipleship and to make the word, the, make the path for others to come and serve. We prepare the way for others. What I mean, people who come behind us, kids, whoever it may be, the community whoever it may be. It's not just the life of the past, it's the life of all believers. John was so humble that he considered himself 
not even worthy to untie the sandals of this man, Jesus. Understand this, that the lowest job that any servant or slave in that time could have had was untying the shoes of their master, the lowest job. John said he's so wretched that he doesn't even deserve to do that. John convicts me. He convicts me. Why? Because he challenges me to ask myself the question, am I worthy of Christ? Am I worthy of all that he has even given me? I would say no every single time. But do my actions and words, does my demeanor say that? Or do I come off entitled? Even if I say no, do I still come off entitled? Do I still come off ungracious? We can say a lot of things. We can know a lot of theology, but if our actions say otherwise, we need to be in question. We need to be challenging ourselves, looking into our hearts, checking ourselves to see whether or not we're of the faith daily, daily. I got to make sure that I'm constantly trying to walk in a posture of humility, in a posture of contentment, in a posture of grace and thanksgiving. Trying to have an attitude of gratitude at all times. And so why is this posture of humility so important as it relates to John and us? Because John says in verse 8, he says that all I can do, all that I can do is stick you in the water. That's all he can do. All I can do is put you in the water. But the one who is coming after me can actually transform your life. So what Pastor DeMars can do, he can baptize you in water, but he himself has no power in and of himself to transform your heart or your mind and your life as a whole. But there is one who can. John tells us that it's Jesus, the Christ. This speaks of soul-transforming work of the Holy Spirit, given only through the relationship with the King, Jesus Christ. Jesus will give you the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit comes salvation, with salvation comes sanctification, and with sanctification comes good works. But you can only partake of this King's Glorious gift, if you believe that out of the abundance of God's love that he sent his son Jesus to the earth to fulfill the law by living a completely sinless life and that he is willing, that he willingly gave himself as a bloody sacrifice on the cross, that he paid the ransom for all sins since the fall of Adam, that he was buried in a borrowed man's tomb, and that on the third appointed morning that Christ got up from the grave, that he shattered the death, the chains of death, and now he is establishing a new covenant of grace, and that he has ascended into the heavens, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And not only that, but he said he would send us a helper, the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist spoke of, the helper to indwell us to walk in all truth and godliness. 
but if you believe. And the question that I pose to you as I close, as we leave here, is that as parents, as teachers, siblings, visitors, spouses, coaches, friends, whoever you may be, when you leave here today, do an examination and ask yourself, what kind of forerunner am I? What kind of forerunner am I? Am I leading people? Am I leading family? Am I leading friends in such a way that they see a clear path to Christ? That they see a clear path to godliness? Or is it the opposite? Am I being a stumbling block? Pointing to a beautiful family is good. Pointing to accumulate degrees is good. Pointing to a nice job is good. Pointing to building wealth is good. Pointing to good health is good. But pointing to Christ, the giver of eternal life, is oh so much better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. And all we ask now, Father, is that your Holy Spirit will make us doers of your word. Christ's name we pray, amen. Please stand with me as we sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. Oh, 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 oh,